Why? It's a question that will never go away. If you don't believe me, then you either don't have children and grandchildren, or you've never been around children. And, and if you want proof, you just need to come some morning, Monday to Thursday, and spend some time with the preschoolers here. Ten minutes with Quinlan. And you know what? Actually, as Christians, why is a question that we need to be prepared for. Look at what Peter has written for us in 1 Peter 3, 13-16. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, that's why, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Did you hear the word that Peter used in his first sentence? Zealous. And we talked about zeal last Sunday. And we said that we need to have zeal, but we need a zeal that is based on knowledge. That zeal without commitment or knowledge, commitment without reflection, enthusiasm without understanding, all of those are fanaticism. And fanaticism is horrid and dangerous. And there are fanatics on both ends of the continuum. Bill O'Reilly once said, there's little anyone can do with fanatics. Reasoning with them is a fool's errand. Avoiding them is mandatory. The first verse of our text this morning was the last verse of our text last Sunday. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says, For Christ is the head of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now I think I already told you this, but if not, the main point of chapters 9 to 11 of Romans is to explain why God still needs to be considered as faithful even though most of the Jews are lost. And while many Gentiles at the same time are being saved. I know that I shared how a key distinction is between those who are ethnic or national Jews, Israel, and those who are spiritual Israel. And the distinction between those circumcised in the flesh and those with a circumcised heart. Those who were Israel on the outside and those who were Israel on the inside. The faithful remnant along with many Gentiles who are vessels of mercy. And I shared a second key factor. The distinction between being chosen for service and being chosen for salvation. 
In chapter 9, Paul showed that God is faithful to his promises to ethnic Israel, even though most of them are lost, because those promises had to do with the nation's service, not salvation. That Israel's election was for service, and that service has in fact been fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah, with Christ. And from verse 30 of chapter 9 all the way to chapter 10, verse 21, which, by the way, includes our text for, text for this morning, Paul is giving another reason why the Jews' lostness does not violate God's faithfulness. Their lostness is not the result of anything God is doing, but it's a result of their own choice. Go back and look again at chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says they deliberately chose to trust their own personal righteousness rather than to submit to God's righteousness. So back to our verse. Verse 4. Now, remember, there were no paragraph breaks, no chapter breaks, not even verse breaks and numbers in the original manuscripts. The chapter divisions didn't come along until 1245 and the first Bible in English to actually use chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible which was published in 1560. So over a thousand years no breaks in the paragraphs or the chapters. And most writers most writers don't see a break between verse 3 and verse 4. Now, our ESV and the NIV uh, don't even have that. Eugene Peterson in the message does, by the way, but most of the translations, beginning with chapter 9, verse 30, uh, have this as a section you find that in the English Standard Version, the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version. The exception is, how many of you familiar with what's called the Holman Christian Bible, Standard Bible? It's one that's put out by the publishing company for, for the Southern Baptist Convention. It has, this whole section is one big paragraph versus 1 through 13 is just one big unit. No break. But verse 4 seems to be a transitional sentence. And I think it can just as easily, actually I think more likely, be the beginning of the next paragraph. I know I included it last week as the concluding verse. But I think it, in terms of the transition, the word for at the beginning of it that, that indicates that there, there's something that's going to being explained, uh, I think that's a key to the fact that this is a break in Paul's thought. And that what the reference is, is that the Jews' ignorance of true righteousness that he talks about in verse 3, not based on knowledge, and what they do not know, which he starts with in verse 4, and what they didn't know is this fact that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. But what does that mean? 
One commentator said that it's one of the fundamental theses of Paul's theology as a whole. And I want to be honest with you, I could do a whole sermon on just this verse. Because it's important for us to know what it means when he says that Christ is the end. The end of the law. There are different words, Greek words, that are used for the end. For instance, back to that chapter that I've talked about many times in Matthew where Jesus is asked by the disciples, what about you said this temple's going to be destroyed? Isn't it beautiful? Tell us about this. Jesus uses two different words for end in that setting. One, the word telos, which is here talking about the end of a process. And so all of that first section of that chapter in Matthew is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, right near the end of that first whole section, he says, and all of you will see these things. This generation won't pass until all this happens. But then he changes the subject down around verse 24 when he uses that construction, Perry Day. But regarding the last day, you're not going to know. Jesus doesn't even know. Only the Father knows. That construction or that use of the word end is important. Christ is the telos, the end of the process of the law for righteousness. To everyone, not just to the Jews, but to everyone. And everyone who believes. I've used the story before. I'll use it again. Because I think it makes the point. If I asked you a question, or if somebody that you knew was a tightrope walker asked you the question, do you believe that I can walk this tightrope across this dangerous vast area beneath. It happened, by the way, with Niagara Falls years and years ago. Do you believe I can walk across this tightrope? You might say, yeah, I can believe you can do that. Do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across it? The man did that. No rubber tire, the wheel, to help keep the wheelbarrow on the cable. But a lot of people in that audience that day said, yeah, I believe that. And then he said, do you believe I could push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope over this big gorge with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And there were several who said, yeah, I believe you could do that. And he said, okay, one of you that believe I can do that, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> do you know that nobody believed he could do that enough to get in the wheelbarrow? And when Paul uses this word believe, he's not talking about something that you have between your ears. Not a conceptual belief. It's a word family that talks about trusting, being loyal. Same word, by the way when it talks about in James that even the demons believe that there is one God and shudder in fear. 
Do you think the demons had knowledge that they believe there's one God that's going to save them? And yet, you'll hear people all the time say, all you got to do is believe. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. All you got to do is believe. That's not what the Bible means. I'll be glad to discuss it further, but hopefully it'll suffice to say that the sentence means that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the termination, the close of the law system as a way to righteousness, as a way of acquiring God's favor. For everyone who comes to believe, to trust, to to be loyal to Him. And that Christ has brought an end to the law only in a qualified sense. And that qualification is spelled out in the second half of the verse that tells us that Christ has terminated the law not really for, but unto righteousness. And the reason for Paul's qualification is that even before Christ came, and not just in this new era, His planned and foreknown atonement You might hear the word used predetermined, predestined. Not who, but the plan. His planned and foreknown atonement, Christ was the predetermined plan or the basis for God's offer of righteousness for those who accepted His loving promises. But it is also important important to remember in the friend in the words of my friend who recently passed away Jack Cottrell that there's never been a time when law was an actual way of righteousness before God even throughout the Old Testament there was always the importance of the internal component the heart so let's look at our verses for today For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will descend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. But we need to continue. Now it says, for the scripture says, not Moses, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Before we start discussing the meaning of these verses, I want us to think again about our visual images. Last Sunday, I used the image of a fork in the road. Because in these chapters, Paul has been talking about some antitheses, choices that are before us. The image that I'm going to use today to help us focus, I may, I admit, is very seasonal. But this image, and the one I'm going to use today, reminds me of another verse that's often taken out of context. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell a story. What does that mean? If all three of them tell the story. It's probably pretty important. And there might be a reason why John didn't. They tell the story about how in Matthew, in following the transfiguration, how Jesus is getting on to the disciples for their failure to heal a boy after he had come down from the mount. And in Mark's account, they're told that it could have been accomplished by them, but it has to be done with prayer. Or as the King James Version said, prayer and fasting. Putting a little effort into the mix. But in Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Somebody preached a sermon on that years and years ago. And a little lady went home, and she thought, wow, I'm going to claim that verse. And she went and she looked out her window where there was a great big tree that was blocking her bay window and her view. And she said, Lord, I'm just going to claim the fact that you said if I pray for it, that you would do it if I had enough faith. And that tree is just keeping my spirits down because it doesn't let the sun in and the warmth. And, and I'm just believing that you're going to move that tree. And I thank you for moving it. And she went up to bed. In the morning, she came flying down the stairs and looked out the window. And guess what? The tree was still there. And she dipped her head. And she said, I really believed. Then she thought for a minute. She said, I knew he wouldn't do it anyway. Two things. Sometimes that's how our belief is. We say we believe. Lord, I believe. Remember what the guy said? But help my unbelief. But the second thing is, is that I don't think Jesus was talking about using the right words or holding our tongue in just the right way or even praying really hard. I, what does that mean? I heard somebody say one time, well, you need to really pray hard for this. Now, I thought every prayer I had was praying hard when I'm talking to God. He didn't say you couldn't use your resources. In fact, often Jesus encouraged it. Like I said, the image I want to use for today is seasonal. And my message is quite simple. 
Don't try to move a mountain of snow with a shovel. I mean, find a snow plow or at least a snow blower. Using available tools is not an indication that you're not acting upon faith. You can still be acting in faith. In fact, the faith that God will provide what we need. In our text for today, Paul has shown that when it comes to our own righteousness, God will provide all of our needs. But salvation is found in Christ alone. We have to rely on what God provides. In the case of salvation, it is the opposite that is true. No matter how much we try to do it on our own, we will not succeed. You don't try to move a mountain of snow with a shovel, nor should you try to attain salvation by earning it, working for it, trying to do it on your own with what very well might be the wrong tools, the wrong works. And so as we begin analyzing these verses, verse 5 talks about the futility of law righteousness or works righteousness. You can't use a shovel to move a mountain of snow. We can't do enough on our own to earn salvation. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And this verse and the next five verses set forth in more detail the contrast between law righteousness on the one hand and what we might think of in terms of God righteousness. Explaining why Christ has ended the former and established the latter. And verse 5 explains the way law righteousness works with the implied conclusion that it's futile for anyone to attempt it. What's he say? He says, if they live by it, if they live by it, he's actually citing something Moses said, keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And Paul paraphrases it actually when he says, the person who does the righteousness of the law will live by it. But what's he mean by will live by it? It means that you have to keep it perfectly. In order to be saved by doing works, by doing the things of the law, you have to do it perfectly. And that's why Paul sees a deeper level of application. He sees the fact that it has to do with the idea of general law and, and it requires absolute obedience. Now, I don't know about you. I know me too well. And I know that I have a really hard time keeping rules and regulations perfectly. If you don't believe me, just agree to follow me sometime from here to Lafayette. <laughs> or I should say, agree to try to keep up with me. We don't do very well, do we? Anybody make a New Year's resolution? 
Not me, because I know before a week or two is over, that was a waste of time. And all of this, when Paul says this, all of this has to be in keeping with what he said in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why it's so important for us to see that Christ has brought an end to all attempts to establish righteousness by laws or works. And it is, in fact, in Christ alone that we find salvation. Jesus alone is the source of saving righteousness. Verses 6 to 10. Paul establishes that saving righteousness comes through trusting Christ's work, not our own works. And these verses set forth a contrast between what might be designated as righteousness attained by the law and righteousness that's attained through Christ. Set up by the word but. And the main point is, is that where law righteousness depends on human works and accomplishments that can never be adequate, faith righteousness depends on the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. And our task is to humbly acknowledge those works of Jesus Christ and rest our hope on them. Now, a lot of the content of verses 6 to 8, by the way, consists of statements that are drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Remember what I told you about Paul? Paul was a top-level rabbi in Judaism. And in order to study under Gamaliel, which he said he did, who was the top level rabbi for many years, he would have had to have exceeded all the other 12-year-olds that tried to be one of Gamaliel's students. Which meant, here we go, he had to have memorized, not a verse here or there, he had to have memorized all of Genesis, all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy as the base level. And then on top of that, most of Isaiah and Jeremiah and a lot of the prophets. Just to be accepted as a student under Gamaliel. And most of what he says here, without a Bible in front of him, an Old Testament, comes from Deuteronomy. But instead of saying Moses says or Moses writes, it's not his intention to repeat Deuteronomy. What he does is he personifies faith righteousness and he says that the righteousness is, that is by faith is characterized by these things that he says. And the first things that he says is, don't say in your heart. He uses the wording in the same way as Moses did, but Paul makes the same point about grace that Moses was making about law. How can one be accepted as righteous before God, not by personal obedience and doing, the man who does these things, verse 5, but only by the works of Jesus Christ. So don't ask yourself, what great work must I do? Isn't that what the rich young ruler came in? What, what should I do to be saved? Paul says, don't ask, 
Should I go into heaven as if you could? Should I descend into hell as if you could? He doesn't say, what can I do? But he, and he even says, don't ask. Do I need to invade the empire of death and say no? He says, what you need to do is to proclaim the word of faith that we proclaim. Moses spoke a word that must be obeyed. Paul proclaimed a word that needed to be believed. And you might ask, well, why is it called the word of faith? Well, one reason is, is that the proper natural response to the word or message of the gospel is to believe it. As contrasted to what we do with the law, we obey it. It's a word of faith. But I think also, is that he's probably wanting to make sure we understand the difference between what faith is and what it means and to rest on grace and what it means to trust our own works. And just how near is that word of faith? Paul says it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And guess what? Deuteronomy 30 says the same thing. But Moses says the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so you must obey it. Now Paul likewise says it demands a response. And that response is, is that we will accept it internally and we will externally surrender to it. You know there's no greater no more significant confession than Jesus is Lord. To confess Jesus as Christ, to confess Jesus as the Son of the living God, as in Matthew 16, those are accurate and they're appropriate. But to admit the central confession of His Lordship is to actually ignore the fundamental pattern of New Testament Christianity. Check it out for yourselves. In the book of Acts, two times Jesus is referred to as Savior. Ninety-two times He's referred to as Lord. I hear people all the time, well, I'll accept Jesus as my Savior, but discipleship, well, that's a different level I'm not ready for. When you go to the entire New Testament, he's referred to as Savior ten times. But guess what? Over 700 times he's referred to as Lord. And when the two titles are mentioned together, Lord always precedes Savior. Jesus cannot be your Savior if he's not the Lord of your life. But, I hope you noticed also that he said salvation is conditional. Verse 9. If you do these things, you'll be saved. 
And that's in keeping with Paul's main point in this chapter. Namely, that the Jews' lostness is not the result of some action or lack of action by God. It's not that God was unfaithful, but it's the result of their own refusal to meet the gracious conditions for receiving salvation. Which brings me to my final point. And that is, is that true righteousness is available to all. Verses 11 to 13 point to how God's righteousness is intended for and available to every being. Not all will be saved, but all can be saved. Paul tells Timothy, God wants all people to be saved. But there's acknowledgement that all people won't be saved. And when Paul writes in verse 11, as Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame, he's directly quoting Isaiah 28. And those who trust in Him, they will be those who meet God on the day of judgment wearing the free gift of the robe of Christ's righteousness. Paul's main point is that righteousness is by faith. And in verses 8 to 10, Jesus is the object of that faith. Again, note that in verse 13, Paul says that God richly blesses all who do what? All who call on Him. Not all who believe in Him. There's a difference. Why does He now change to call on Him? Personally, I believe it's because calling upon the Lord is a way of confessing with our mouths, uniting faith with the act of confession. And the relationship between calling on the Lord and salvation from sin also helps us to understand how baptism is related. Acts 22, verse 16. God's messenger, Ananias, tells the penitent, but yet as as yet unsaved Saul tells him to do what Joel 2.32 says and call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Do this, Ananias says, while you are being baptized and washing away your sins. Do you know that every single conversion in the book of Acts includes baptism shortly after the confession and repentance. Every single one. One last point about verse 13. I think it's a clear affirmation of the deity of Jesus. When he quotes that verse, he's referring to Jesus. But when he says what Joel says, Lord, Joel used all capital letters, which those who were here Wednesday night, that means what? Yahweh, God the Father. Now, in Romans, Paul quotes Joel using this in reference to Jesus. So there can be no question that the Lord refers to Jesus and is a part of our saving confession. So here's my challenge. The main point of this whole paragraph, verse 4 to 13 is that Jesus Christ alone is the source of saving righteousness. It's truly in Christ alone. The emphasis throughout has been upon Jesus. 
And as Paul closes the section by climatically applying Joel's prophecy to Jesus, Paul shows why we can have confidence in him. Because he's no less than God himself. And so my challenge for you today is to find comfort in the knowledge that Jesus is the source of saving righteousness. And that as long as we faithfully and loyally trust Jesus and what He did, going back to Romans 6, if we, in our baptism, really did mortify the flesh, put the body to death, and rise to walk in newness of life, we rise with Christ. So that His resurrection then becomes our resurrection. Find comfort in that. You can know that you're saved as long as you are not choosing to rebelliously laugh at God in His face. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for these verses from Paul and we just ask that You'll help us to reconsider them, to reread them, and to realize just how important it is that we do in fact show the obedience of faith. Help us to commit ourselves to that. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.